Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Firstly, an apologies, a bit delayed. It's like technical issues. Want to get this right, obviously, given the gravity of what we are talking about. It's been 18 days now since the horrors of the 7th of October. And since then, we've seen horror upon horror as the collective punishment of the people of Gaza um, has been imposed by the Israeli state with the active support of Western governments. Thousands have now been killed, many of them, of course, children, the health infrastructure in a state of collapse, people drinking seawater and from IV drips because there isn't any clean water left, civilian infrastructure being destroyed, pummeled, including by bombs supplied by Western um, governments. Um, we've heard the rhetoric of the Israeli state and Israeli officials reducing Gaza to a city of tents, talking of human animals, proudly boasting and cutting off everything, or water, food, energy, basic supplies, which again contravenes Article 33 of the Geneva Convention, um, as well as uh, talk of eliminating everything and so on and so forth. We've not even, well, the thing's been forgotten, it's what's happening in the West Bank at the moment. We're seeing the killings of dozens of Palestinian civilians there uh, by the Israeli forces and Israeli uh, settlers. Gruesome, to say the least. Um, what I've tried to do ever since this crisis began is obviously offer my own commentary, but there's quite enough white guys um, in the British media currently discussing what's happening. So I've been trying to elevate the sorts of voices that we desperately need to be hearing, Palestinian voices, Muslim voices, both here and abroad, Jewish voices, um, Israeli voices, those brave Israelis fighting for peace, the likes of Betzalem and other, other Israeli peace activists. Tomorrow I'll be discussing, I'll be talking to an Israeli academic who's just been fired from his job for opposing the crime being committed against the people of Gaza. So that's what we're trying to do as best we can. I'm very lucky actually to have some great guests today and I'll be bringing in um, imminently one. Um, well, a fantastic guest. Yeah, many of you will know Iyad El-Baghadi, who is a brilliant writer activist, many has many caps, um, a Palestinian refugee. Um, before I uh, begin, um, it's difficult. I have done my best to make an editorial decision. I've not been showing some of the gruesome picture, video videos coming out of Gaza. And that's difficult because part of the problem we're dealing with is Palestinian life has not been valued as a having equal worth, of course, to Western life, Israeli life, it's just, it's not, I mean, might as well just be said. That's, that's, that's clearly not what's happening. Um, it's difficult because these traumatizing uh, video clips. And um, do you show people as best you can the reality of what's going on, knowing you're also sharing horrible trauma? Difficult one. 
I'm not going to do that today, but I will just show a couple of clips before we begin. And one is taken by a very courageous journalist, Mohammed Samir, in Gaza, just showing what we're talking about in terms of the horrors, the, the ruins of Gaza at the moment. Oh, I do apologize. Actually, no, we've got a journalist here. Sorry, a journalist who lost, a, a medic, no, sorry, Israeli journalist who lost a loved one. Um, and that's as far as I'm going to go today. <laughs> That's a journalist in Gaza who's just been informed that he's lost his wife and his children. And it is important, horrible to watch such a scene, that we do show some of the the human impact of the, of, of what we're discussing. Now, I'm going to bring in, before, uh, before I start as ever, please press like and subscribe. Do share the video. Um, and keep showing the road at patreon.com forward slash unenjoys84. You can use Super Chat like Tad Campwell. Um, not sure if you're aware, says Tad Campwell, Wix employees in Ireland were encouraged to put pro-Israel views on social media. I'm actually aware of one. Uh, Wix is a Israeli uh, software company and one Irish employee has been fired for their pro-Israeli, uh, sorry, for pro-Palestinian views. Uh, I know the Irish Taoiseach has uh, publicly suggested taking them to an employment tribunal. It's interesting, Ireland's one of the few countries to actually have called for a ceasefire, which I would say isn't because they have a left-wing government, they don't, but because of the history of Ireland of being colonised by the British, which I think probably gives a different sort of um, flavour to, to the politics of this. Now I'm going to bring in the brilliant Iyad El Baghdadi, sorry, El Baghdadi, who is based in Oslo in Norway. You're a Palestine refugee, of course. Uh, lots of people will be following your work. I know I have over the years. It's informed many of the, the views that I've had. So we're very, very grateful to have you, Iyad, particularly at a difficult time, very difficult time. Um, thank, you so thank you for having me and thank you for doing this. No, no, it goes without saying, honestly. Um, yeah, can you just firstly ta just tell us yourself, just that it's been 18 days now. It's kind of incredible to to say that feels it feels longer in lots of ways doesn't it just tell, just tell us from your perspective um as a palestinian who's obviously now living in you know in oslo what's just just, just tell us, even from an emotional level what what those what how you now look if you're going to take a step back as best you can over these last horrible 18 days yeah it is difficult because it, it feels like a, like nobody has slept since then uh, we're exhausted, we're triggered, and it doesn't feel like just our triggers. I mean, it it feels like it like just another chapter. It feels like we're re-experiencing re things that we experienced all, all all our lives. The nightmares that I'm seeing when I when, whenever I try to go to sleep are all about other instances in history where we saw Palestinians being mowed down, being shot, being 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 persecuted it's you know our trauma is intergenerational and it's just so hard it's just so hard to keep it together especially when you're in diaspora and you're you know you're you're missing community to to, to be around uh it's scary it's really scary and the fact is we're still in a kind of standstill we're still waiting to see just how bad, how much worse is going to get. And the worst of it really, Owen, is th this feeling in your gut, like this feeling of impasse, feeling like you know for sure that things are not going to get better from here. You know that even if, even if we get the best case scenario and there's a ceasefire, 
and 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 some kind of de-escalation. We're still back to no solution, you know, no end in sight, no settlement, you know, no end to the pain, just back to more relentless violence with no end. I mean, this is this is like this is what worse this is what feels the worst in my gut. It's very powerful, thank you. Um Look, I haven't spoke to you about the events of 7th of October. I think maybe we should start just there. Um, given it's been 18 days, I mean, lots of time to process and, and think about what happened that day. I'm just wondering just, you know, in terms of it's, it's been, obviously, people are shocked, horrified by the atrocities committed. How you did a really interesting thread on Twitter, um, which partly discussed Hamas in the context of 7th of October um, and how it needs to be understood. And I just wondered if you could just unpack some of the things that you've you've been thinking, because I know you've been thinking out loud, been thinking as lots of people have. Just just talk us through what what you've kind of concluded so far. Well, uh, I'm just going to warn you first that this is going to be rambling a little bit. It's difficult for me to to uh, to to have kind of a logical plan of what I'm going to say, but I'm just going to go with the flow here. The first thing that I uh, that 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 I felt. Uh, post October seventh, like once I realized which, which what had happened, is fear. It's just fear because we know, we know what's next. We know what's going to happen. There's this kind of brutal calculation, because you know that a Palestinian life is not worth the same as an Israeli life, and you know that for every life that Hamas takes, it's going to be ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred taken on the other side the calculation immediately you know it just it just it just it's just terrifying the the other thing that really came came you know i mean i i tried to really just analyze it i mean of course my my job uh, my job is strategy and this, this is what this is you know this is what i do geopolitical strategy and uh, you know so you're trying to understand what's going on. You're trying to understand what's, um, what's, what does the chessboard look like? I mean, and I, and I hate doing that. I hate, I hate to talk geo. I'm a human rights activist in the end, and geopolitics sometimes is dehumanizing because you have to look at chess pieces instead of human beings. But we still have to do it. And I just like the others. The other. The other. The other thing that just sucks you, like, just feels like like a black hole in your gut. Really is. The endless escalatory potential over here. The endless ways that this can get worse, because this is this region. And I remember, I remember, I was, I was in an event, unrelated event. It was an event about United States foreign policy. This was like a three three weeks before October seventh, um, two or three weeks, country And I was like, it was it was basically a bunch of you know, um, foreign policy analysts, etc., thinkers. And, and I had, I mean, my, the, the point that I was, that I, that I wanted to say at the time, and that, that's what, what I shared with the, it was a closed event. And what, what, what I shared is this region is a big, is a box of grievances and trauma. It's a house of cards and it could explode into crises any minute. And I remember, I mean, I remember even the faces some people scoff. Some people basically that, that there is this 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 perception that actually the Middle East is managed right now. Actually, like you know, like and I, I believe it was 
uh, I can't remember, uh, can't remember who it is, but basically someone in the US administration had said just a few days before that this is, has been the quietest time in the Middle East for 20 years. And the thing is, we've been screaming, we've been screaming into the void for years now, saying that this can this is gonna explode, this is gonna explode, this is going to explode. It's so terrible when you know you've been right, you know you've been you've seen this coming, you know it's been it's an it's inevitability, and nobody listened. Nobody listened. Um, you asked me about Hamas and how to see, you know, how, how to view Hamas. And th this is also a change, you know, this is a point of inflection in Hamas's history as well. Uh, I think I think we have to acknowledge that we don't fully understand what happened. Um, there are, I mean, a lot, a lot of what we have to do on a daily basis is just consume a lot of information. And I can tell you that it seems that uh, the military wing of Hamas planned this on its own without even telling the political wing. It seems that the political political wing of Hamas are actually like they're already informed. They weren't even in on the decision. It seems that Hamas itself has gone through uh, a, a you know a, a, a considerable radicalization. This is a different kind of operation. We've never seen Hamas attempt something at this scale before. Mm -hmm. And what worries me the most is what their what their plan is beyond this, because I don't think I don't think whoever whatever brain um, planned such a meticulous operation did not plan on the Israeli response. I think they were actually counting, maybe even planning on a ground invasion, and that scares me, because the escalatory potential with uh, you know, Iranian, uh, you know, uh, pro-Iran forces coming in, um, you know, uh, the, the kind of language that's coming from the Israeli side about like ethnically cleansing Gaza, uh, using this as an opportunity, as Netanyahu said, to change the Middle East. In this case, it would be, you know, uh, openly openly speaking about like moving all of these Timorian Gazans into, into Sinai, into Egypt. Uh, this is this is a new level, the new level of risk and a new level of deprav depravity. Uh, this is not something we faced any any time any, any at any point in our lifetimes. Uh, probably not at any point since the original Nakba, nineteen forty eight. Even the original Nakba was not this. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Like, there wasn't two million Palestinians at the time. Um. So yeah, I'll stop here, Owen. I don't know yeah. if. Uh, if you want to follow up, but I'm I'm, I'm sorry for I'm, I'm sorry again for yep. not being able to to organize my thoughts on this. It's not rambling at all. It's actually better that you just speak from the heart um, as as you go along, rather than you know just sanitize or carefully curate what you're saying in in a way that doesn't convey what you're actually thinking. I suppose. Um, I'm interested. I mean, because it it does strike me with Hamas as well that, um, I mean, partly from the very different experiences that have been have come out in terms of how people are treated. We've heard basically of ISIS-style atrocities, but also of, of, of Israelis talking about how, you know, they invaded their homes and treated kindly. And it makes me, it comes across as though there was no discipline, that this you, 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 there wasn't a sense, a centralised plan, and there couldn't have been, because Mossad presumably have spies all over the Gaza Strip, and they didn't know that this was happening. I mean, this is an absolutely astonishing failure of a security establishment which is supposed to be second to none on earth and it was allowed you had a, an invasion and a rampage which went on for a very very long time unchecked 
So I'm just wondering, I mean, is that, you know, you know, because now it's popular as part of this to say Hamas is ISIS. Um, but that's not true, is it? I mean, it's a bit more, it's it's more complicated than that. And that in no way negates the atrocities that did, did that have taken place. I mean, even if we accept, so this, is, this is a thing that I was actually trying to write about today. The fact is that um, the Israeli reliance on, on disinformation has really created a huge infocalypse, you know, because on my timeline, I see people, you know, uh, tweeting in Arabic and I see people, you know, I, I have a very, very, very diverse kind of timeline. And I can see that Arabs and and a lot of a lot of uh, Palestinians no longer trust anything that comes from the Israeli side. They just no longer listen. So a lot of the atrocities, a lot of the reports of the atrocities are not even reported uh, to, to, to those folks. They don't they're not even aware of it. Um, but the fact is that even if we accept the minimum, I mean, even if we accept the minimum, we have to accept that horrible atrocities have been committed by Hamas. Horrible atrocities. We don't know the full picture. Like, we don't know whether, like, again, these are commandos who have been training for at least a year to do this. Uh, I can understand them being ruthless. I can understand them being, but I don't understand them being undisciplined. I mean, th this is, this is, there's a lot there that we don't understand in terms of what how much of this was planned how much of this was was calculated how much of this was basically a breakdown of of of, of, of discipline how much of it was other factions we don't know yet but we still we still have to acknowledge that horrible atrocities have been committed by hamas uh, i mean you, you you mentioned the uh the, the hostages etc and you know uh a lot of the people who were killed by hamas in this operation were actually, you know, peace activists, Jewish peace activists, Israeli Israeli peace activists who actually worked very hard for Palestinian rights, including, I mean, for example, the grandmother who who was who was released a few days ago. Um, and you know, the, the the video of her shaking the hand of her abductor, etc., went viral. So her and her husband, you know, dedicated many, many years of their lives to helping sick people in Gaza who you know very rarely are able to leave gaza for medical treatment helping them get medical treatment in israel so she's basically a human rights activist one you know uh, another person who also was murdered uh, is, is is a young man uh, young man called Chaim, who you know this man used to used to be a protective presence for palestinian farmers palestinian uh, uh, and shepherds who are being ethnically cleansed in Masafir Yatta and in, you know, in, in other places in, in, in the West Bank. So even if we accept the minimum, minimum, I mean, even if we ex you know, accept the minimum story that is portrayed from the Israeli side, then yes, there, there are horrible atrocities. There's no question about that. I'm a human rights activist. I cannot not, uh, 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 you know, uh, value all human life. That said, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, this did not happen in a vacuum. And there is no moral difference here. To me, there's no moral difference between someone who excuses the murder of innocents, of innocent uh, Israelis, or someone who excuses and actively abets the genocidal, hysterical actions of the state of Israel in response or before. I mean, again, this is a 75-year-old story. Uh, Palestinians, every Palestinian living today, most Palestinians living today are basically survivors of erasure. They're survivors of ethnic cleansing. This is 
we don't only carry our own trauma and our own wounds. We try to carry the trauma of our parents, our grandparents. And right now it feels like all of those wounds are open. In terms of, I mean, there's a bit of a debate, by the way, about what happens. I've some, seen one Israeli peace activist suggest that a land invasion might not happen, um, which I thought was quite interesting. And a lot of this depends, obviously, on... It shouldn't be reduced to a psychodrama involving Benjamin Netanyahu and his government. He's very unpopular in Israel at the moment. Um, and some are even suggesting he could be removed. But I don't know, you know, there was one argument that, well, actually, they weren't prepared for what happened on the 7th of October. They're not actually prepared for a counter-offensive. Um, and that what we might see is just airstrikes after airstrikes going on for a very, very long time with terrible suffering, of course. I just wondered what you thought, in terms of if you had any any thoughts on what you think might happen and what the reality of a ground invasion might actually entail. We're talking, of course, about a tiny strip of land the size of that East London, densely uh, populated, 2.2 million people, of course. But what's your thoughts and particularly the the menace of a new Nakba? So, I mean, the, the menace is real and, you know, the, the, the fear is real. Uh, and, and, you know, the intention is very clear as well. I mean, there's, there's a whole... I mean, someone actually uh, uh, compiled them into kind of a thread on Twitter, The you know, a, a whole list of genocidal statements, open intent to ethnically cleanse Gaza. That said, uh, I have a feeling that Netanyahu painted himself in the, in, into a corner with, you know, setting up this goal of, you know, eliminating Hamas. Hamas are dug in, they're prepared, they're well supplied, they're well trained, and they have the defensive advantage, uh, you know. And they have, a, uh, you know, as far as I know from everything I read, and any everything, lots of lots of reports about this, uh, they have extremely well designed, uh, extremely well designed tunnel systems designed exactly for this kind of this kind of uh, invasion. At the same time, the Israeli army has not fought this kind of battle ever. They haven't fought in an urban environment, like urban kind of real urban pitched uh, 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 battle or war since the Lebanese civil war. We're talking, you know, a generation. And it's very clear from, you know, like, I, I, I mean, I was, I was following some telegram uh, posts, uh, interviews with Hamas, uh, you know, uh, uh, figures, etc. And the, the message coming from them was essentially, we, you know, we, on October 7th, the, the army collapsed before us. I mean, I mean, it, it's like the attack was more successful than they expected. And part of, part of that, of course, is that a lot of the army was 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 stationed on the West Bank, uh, assisting you know extremist settlers, etc., uh, uh, harass uh, uh, Palestinians over there. But that said, it seems to me that um, uh, Netanyahu cannot afford not to have a ground invasion. It seems that even he has communicated this to the Americans. The Americans seem to be setting, you know, putting things in order uh, to manage such a such an eventuality. They're also trying. I mean, I think a lot of what what the Biden administration is doing really is trying to manage the escalation to make sure that Netanyahu can do whatever he wants in in Gaza without an escalation. I don't think that's that's ever possible. I think there's going to be an escalation. Uh, but. I don't share that. I mean, some people have almost blind faith that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, will be able to 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 uh, carry out this operation is going to prevail. I don't share that 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 blind faith. 
Uh, in fact, there was a, a report that I read and shared also on my account uh, that talks about this. Basically, a, a retired uh, Israeli general who was talking about the Israeli army and talking about how it has become, he described it as, if I remember correctly, a one-dimensional, primarily aerial force uh, that is not prepared for the, and that cannot win a war on its own. Uh, of course, it's not on its own right now because we see the United States on its side. We also see, uh, uh, you know, the potential of other Western powers coming in. We even have this this kind of insane statement by by uh, by uh, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron talking about uh, uh, absolutely insane, absolutely irresponsible. Um, really, what we need right now, Owen, is de-escalation. De-escalation is in everybody's benefit given the you know the 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 chessboard as i said except for netanyahu netanyahu knows that he's gone he's done uh the only you know the only thing that he that can keep him in power longer is prolonging this prolonging this war just finally um i mean if there isn't that de-escalation you know there's this talk obviously fiery talk about the destruction of hamas and all the rest of it and of course people might remember what happened in iraq we had as was predicted, um, because part of the justification for the Iraq war was uh, the idea of Saddam Hussein was in cahoots with Al-Qaeda, which was a nonsense, but we did get the rise of Al-Qaeda in the aftermath. And then you got a brutal war to suppress Al-Qaeda. And I think then those who lacked perhaps imagination couldn't think you could get anything worse than Al-Qaeda. We did get something worse than Al-Qaeda. We got ISIS. And then we got the horrors of ISIS and the conquering of much of Iraq and Syria by ISIS. Um, and that, I suppose, the difference is this time, You've had, you know, that was something which had, you know, in terms of an armed conflict and occupation for relatively few years compared to what the Palestinians have gone through. So I suppose, what do you think your warning would be there in, in terms of what, what could happen if, you know, this idea Hamas can be defeated by military means and, 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 and what, what, what that actually would mean in practice? I mean, so first of all, we have to speak about the, the, the 2 million people, 2.3 million Palestinians living in Gaza. Uh, the Israeli plan was initially to force and pressure Egypt to take them, to basically open the borders and, you know, uh, empty out Gaza. And we know, we don't know, of course, ever if they're ever going to be, if they're ever going to be, you know, uh, allowed back home. I mean, Israel has a record in, in, in doing this, you know, expelling Palestinians from their land and then taking it. Um, that would be fatally destabilizing to the country of Egypt and and we've seen uh, Egyptian authorities uh, you know very adamant saying that we cannot allow this to happen and it's not because the Egyptians like Hamas it's not because the e Egyptian uh, uh, regime likes Hamas it's because this would be it's because the Egyptian regime wants to remain in power this would be in extremely destabilizing so that's the first the, the first factor to consider that you know how are you going to fight if if uh, you know if Egypt's not going to take 2.3 million Palestinians, how are you going to fight in such uh, a densely populated urban environment without committing horrible atrocities amounting to genocide? Um, the other question really is, I mean, to your point, I mean, how are you going to even destroy this organization? Keep in mind, I mean, there's, there's, there's very important. it's very important to note that Hamas does not come from the same... Uh, you know, ideological genealogy as ISIS and Al Qaeda. I mean, they—they. They, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into the weeds here, but uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda basically are Salafi organizations 
which oppose any idea of nationalism. They oppose nationalism. Meanwhile, Hamas is explicitly a nationalist organization. It's in their charter that they are a Palestinian nationalist organization. Uh, in my view, and this is something, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to write more about in my, in, in, in my Twitter feed. Hamas is really a nationalist organization that wears Islamic garb. It's, it's, at its core, it's a nationalist project. Uh, even if you somehow destroy Hamas, how are you going to destroy the idea of armed resistance to Israel? That's not going away. Uh, I mean, that's that's definitely not going away. And in fact, if you have large uh, a large refugee population, disenfranchised population, traumatized population that just gives Hamas or anyone who would replace Hamas an even deeper, uh, you know, uh, pit of, of grievances to exploit and recruit. Hmm. Yeah, um, this is this is a very busy time for you. Also, I would an exhausting time. I would say physically and emotionally. Really, really appreciate talking to you. Um, the humanity, I think, really shone through of what you said, as well as the insight. And um, I'm always grateful to be able to speak to you. If people don't follow follow you, which they should, please rectify that immediately. Um, but he had lots of love and solidarity, and I'll be reading on a daily basis everything you say, and I hope others do as well. Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much. Um, brilliant stuff there from, from Iyad. Um, I saw that actually Tad Campbell. I'm so sorry, Tad, you had a question there to Iyad. I will try and talk about that later. Sorry about it, Ruvan. And I'll go through the super chats um, at uh, the end. That's my uh, door going, but we will ignore that for now. Um, just, I did say I was going to show some of the devastation in Gaza, uh, which I've been avoiding doing for various reasons, but let me just play that clip again. That was taken by Mohammed Amir, who is a Palestinian journalist, an incredibly brave Palestinian journalist who is in Gaza. And again, I am trying to show, avoid showing images which are just too distressing for people, but we have to show the reality of what's happening in our name. Right, I'm going to bring in our next guest because we've been we've, we're late, so huge apologies to the brilliant Dr. Omar Abdel Manan. Huge apologies to you, Dr. No problem uh, at all. Pleasure uh, to be here. It's a it's a huge honor, uh, huge honor to have you. Now, you've been to Gaza several times, I know that, um, and um, you've been involved with the name of the organization, I wrote it down somewhere, but maybe, maybe you could just tell us the organization which helps and, and, and what you've been doing over the years. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on, I and mean, I've uh, followed your work for a long time, so I really appreciate having Sorry you. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm uh, a pediatric neurologist, so uh, I deal with children with brain and spinal cord diseases uh, based in London. I am Egyptian by origin, but was uh, brought up in the UK. Um, and I have been going to Gaza and the West Bank since 2011. So um, I actually, as a medical student in my final year of medical school, I set up a educational link between um, our university and the Palestinian medical schools uh, and got involved with a team called the Oxford Teaching Initiative. Uh, led by Professor Nick Maynard, who many of you might have seen on the on BBC and Sky News and Talk TV over the last few days. Um, and this is a team, an informal team of doctors, surgeons, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a mix of these uh, specialists who go out and teach medical students there. 
Some of the surgeons also perform surgery, but they do that separately outside of this program with other teams. So our primary focus is teaching, collaborating, working together with the students and the junior doctors and training and also learning from them. Um, I've been out there numerous times uh, to Gaza, I think four times in total. Um, and the other thing I've been doing since this uh, horrific war uh, started is um, I am in direct contact uh, myself and a team of mine with Gazan doctors on the ground. So what we saw very early on was uh, very little media uh, interest in what's happening on the ground inside Gaza and in the hospitals especially. So because of our unique position, we decided to set up a social media platform called Gaza Medic Voices. You can find us on Instagram at Gaza Medic Voices and Twitter and Meta and TikTok. And um, we basically report firsthand eyewitness accounts from doctors, nurses, paramedics on the ground in Gaza um, anonymously to protect their identity and their future, even though they actually ask us every time for their names to be published, but we refuse most of the time. Um, and we've been doing that. We've, um, we've kind of continued to do that since the escalation has happened. So that's how we communicate them with them directly. Most of that communication is through voice notes, messages, text messages, uh, photos, videos. There's very little direct communication by phone because of the signal and communication issues there. So that's my background and how I've come to where I am today. So based on that, can you explain, tell us what you know about the situation in terms of the healthcare system in Gaza, where it's currently at after nearly 18 days now of, 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 of war? So um, interestingly, I was actually just going back and looking at a lecture that I had given, delivered in 2015 to uh, a group of uh, interested uh, uh, audience on healthcare in Gaza. And the sad truth is, this is a healthcare system that has been on its knees because of an Israeli siege and blockade since 2007. This is a healthcare system that was essentially on its last limbs uh, it was in dire need of resuscitation. It was struggling from a supply point of view, from a capacity point of view, from a basic um, sort of healthcare systems point of view. And this war has just pushed it over the edge. And as we are hearing from the UN, from Oxfam, from big external organizations and the Gazan doctors on the ground, the healthcare system has collapsed. Now we talk, I, I work and live in the UK and I work in the NHS. And we talk about the NHS collapsing and the NHS struggling. When we look back to COVID and we think about how close we were to a collapse of our healthcare system here, this is unprecedented. This is on another level. If you thought COVID was bad, this is a completely new uh, paradigm that we're in. These uh, hospitals are overflowing with patients. They are ran out of electricity. They don't have basic sanitation, basic infectious disease, uh, measures. I have seen videos, pictures, voice notes from doctors explaining to me how they've had to amputate children's legs with little to no anesthetic because they had to save the child, for example, from impending sepsis or impending infection. And there was no choice but to do it uh, with no to little anesthetic. I've seen and heard stories of women delivering in the maternity service. And in, bear in mind, in Gaza, there's 5,000 deliveries a month. That's, you know, uh, pretty decent number compared to London, for example, any large London teaching hospital will have a, a drop in the ocean compared to that. 
um, you know, these women are delivering babies in unsafe conditions with little to no san sanitation. If they have a hemorrhage and they bleed, which happens in a percentage of people who give birth, they will not have blood to be, you know, to for transfusions. On top of that, you've got children and patients who have cancer, who have chemotherapy on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, and they are not getting access to those drugs. Those drugs have ran out. So there's, you know, uh, a huge issue with a already very weak healthcare system that's been compounded by this these atrocious bombings and attacks which have just decimated them. And there's indirect effects of what's happening as a result. And not only that, but you have hospitals being targeted. You have Al-Hala Hospital being bombed. You have a ophthalmology unit that was brought down to the ground. So, um, you know, the, this, this, that's kind of the paint picture that I'm trying to paint to your audience. So um, not easy to listen to, but um, incredibly necessary to listen to. Um, I mean, we know, obviously, that people have been directly killed by missiles. But what we're talking about here is it could well be perhaps that the greatest death toll could be from, I mean, what is a horrible clinical term in these contexts, an excess death uh, toll. Um, so we can see, you know, people directly being killed. But what we're talking about is a potentially much, much bigger death toll, which is hard to quantify, because if you have a collapsing health system, then everyone from those who have pre-existing underlying health conditions to those who are pregnant, those who have various health needs can't be looked after. And I'm just wondering, without energy, without without basic sanitation or the rest of it, what a health system can actually do and what human impact that will have when they run completely out of fuel. Hospitals are closing at the moment, of course. Yeah. So a third of the hospitals have shut down. They've said we can't we can't operate, we can't work as as hospitals. That's a figure I read this morning. That may be more now. I haven't caught up with everything that's developing, but that's the last figure I had. Um, in answer to your question, absolutely. The number of excess deaths result from mainly infectious diseases. And we're seeing cases of chickenpox. We're hearing cases of uh, infectious diseases spreading between patients. And you know, this is not just patients who are well. This is immunocompromised patients with cancer on chemotherapy who definitely do not need to be exposed to these sort of infections. So when this happens and then you start getting cholera, typhoid, these diseases that you see in humanitarian catastrophes such as Haiti, when the earthquake happened, 100,000 people died, or the Libyan dam that uh, exploded or broke a few months, or maybe a month back now, with 10,000 deaths. This is a sort of humanitarian crisis that happens. What absolutely is shocking to me is that in this conflict, there is no push or there is very little push towards a ceasefire from our governments, from Western politicians. There needs to be an immediate ceasefire to be able to allow humanitarian aid to go in to Gaza to help patients, and not only to bring in humanitarian aid, but to help the doctors on the ground who are exhausted. I know of at least 60 healthcare professionals who have been killed directly by Israeli bombing um, over the last 18 days. Some of them are close friends of mine, at least two of them I uh, know well and would speak to on a monthly or you know every two or three months by WhatsApp. Uh, and their whole families have been wiped out. They've died with you know an Israeli airstrike. And this is untenable. This is a situation that's unprecedented and something needs to change. And I just want to pass on just all my thoughts um, and condolences. That's, um, and, and I know, I can see from the comments, people are very emotionally touched by what you're talking about, but 
to be able to talk about this when you've got your own grief to deal with. Um, is beyond bear in mind, sorry, bear in mind though, and this is not just a doctor, you know, uh, doctor friend of mine, this is in entire family. So a specific example that I want to mention because he was a dear friend of mine, Dr. Omar Farwana, he was the head of the Islamic University in Gaza Medical School, a larger than life character who was an amazing uh, physician. He was at home with his children, grandchildren, wife, and an Israeli airstrike led to the collapse of the building and all of them died. There was not a single survivor from his immediate. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, just finally, Omar, I just wanted to ask you, um, and I'm so sorry to hear that, of course, um, without getting into... The politics of it all i just wanted to ask you a straightforward question which just touches on something you just said there there are those who aren't in government and their argument is not for a ceasefire they're not calling for a ceasefire but instead they're calling for increased humanitarian aid into gaza with no call for a ceasefire attached what does that mean in that context is that because some would argue that's in reputational damage limitation on part of those who aren't calling for a ceasefire because how can you get humanitarian aid in any meaningful way if there are bombs raining down on a densely populated tiny strip? Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. So humanitarian air co aid corridors only work when you stop bombing. And that happened in Operation Castled in every other escalation I've seen. And there's been six major escalations since the siege of Gaza started in 2007. In every other time point, the Israelis have stopped bombing to allow aid in. I'm not saying you know that was uh, you know that was that was a situation. Currently, that is not happening. So that's why only 20 trucks are going a day into Gaza. Previous to this, 200 to 500 trucks were going in daily to provide supplies to top up a struggling and crippled healthcare system. 20 dro drops is 20 trucks is a drop in the ocean, as the UN rightly said. They are not sending fuel in. That means no generators are working. That means no electricity. That means no ventilators for patients on intensive care, that means more and more excess deaths. And frankly, how many more children need to die before our politicians wake up and start pushing for change? Is it 5,000? Is it 10,000? What's the magic number? Because half of the population of Gaza is under 18. And since this uh, escalation started, you know, we've lost 2,360 children as of my last uh, read of the statistics. And that's 2,360 souls, too many. And the ones that have not been killed have been orphaned. These are children and young, uh, young patients who will have no family. They will grow up 
you know, having lost their immediate family. And that will lead to psychological trauma, that will lead to poor educational performance, that will lead to socioeconomic shifts, which are going to, you know, Gaza will bear the brunt of that for the next 20, 30 years. And actually the world will bear the brunt of that because these same children will struggle. These same children will become refugees and they will, you know, this is a, a continuing escalation. And it's frankly horrific and atrocious. As I say, Emma, that was obviously incredibly powerful. Again, just beyond sorry about your own losses. And I don't think anyone could, could not have been incredibly affected by what you said and the scale of the horror that has been unleashed with the support of our governments, it must be said. Um, but all my love and solidarity, and I know from everyone who who watches and listens to this, um, thank you so, so much for joining us. And I'll um, make sure that I include a link, obviously, to the, the brilliant work that your organisation is doing. But thank you so much and take care. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care. Take care now. Um, not easy to listen to, but important. That's the scale of the crime that is currently being committed. Now, I've left Ali waiting too long. Ali Milani, who was the former, uh, one has got many hats, uh, stood against Boris Johnson. I campaigned for him up in Oxford and South Ryslip, but also writer um, involved in well, activism um, and is also in the Labour Muslim uh, network, which represents um, obviously Muslim members of the Labour Party and Muslim supporters of the Labour Party. Um, and that could not be more topical. I'm just going to quickly, Ali, if you don't mind, just because I know we've only got uh, 50 minutes or so before you got to scoot. Um, just a little replay. Keir Starmer backed war crimes on national radio and then pretended he didn't. That's just a quick summary. Let's just, to clarify, so we're not continuing this gaslighting charade, which apparently now we're supposed to buy into. Let's just do very quickly, just, just, put, just sort that out. I was not saying that Israel had the right to cut off water, food, fuel, or medicines. And yet people uh, on, came on, to that well, conclusion. On the... I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself. Um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power? Cutting off water? Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. So what he did there, you see, is he claimed he never said something he did say. That was then called by several journalists a clarification. It wasn't. It was It was a lie. It was a straightforward um, lie. Um, he then, when lots of councillors across the country have resigned, many Muslims always um, have resigned, um, and many people have resigned from the Labour Party full stop, um, he visited an Islamic centre in South Wales, saying, I was grateful to hear from the Muslim community, the South Wales Islamic Centre, I repeated our calls for all hostages to be released, more humanitarian aid, to enter Gaza for the water and the power to be switched back on and a renewed focus on the two-state um, solution. People are outraged by the fact that he's starting a, uh, doing a post talking about going to an Islamic centre, where he's talking about his demand for hostages to be released by Hamas. Um, this caused, I have to say, a huge amount of um, anger amongst the Muslim uh, community and beyond. Um, and uh, the uh, South Wales Islamic Centre has issued themselves a statement expressing uh, their dismay at Keir Starmer and also um, for feeling that they were, that the purpose was was basically abused uh, by Keir Starmer. They said that his social media posts and images grossly represented our um, congruence and the nature of the visit, um, which is, I would say, pretty scandalous myself. Yeah, I mean, let's just, just on that, Ali, because we've got talks now. I mean, there's actually talk of people resigning from the shadow cabinet. I mean, we'll see about that. I didn't believe it. Uh, Shabab Khan from ITV talks about multiple, uh, two shadow cabinet members considering resigning. 
just, I mean, so many have resigned, and I've interviewed Muslim councillors who've resigned. Um, what's your take on, in terms of where Labour are at with, with um, there the are 4 million British Muslims, and they're a huge part of Labour's electoral coalition, but some would say they're treated as voting fodder at the best of times by these people. I mean, you went through a lot there. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I know. I needed to recap. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's been uh, quite a day. Earlier, I was at the door, by the way. You didn't pick up. You didn't answer the door. I was I was buzzing earlier, but you didn't. Oh, I thought I was wondering who that was. Uh, so listen, it has been the toughest 10 to 12 days for me as a Muslim Labour Party member, uh, as the chair of the Labour Muslim Network, uh, just as a Muslim. Because I think where we are now is... I said this on LBC, the morning following Keir's LBC, you know, now synonymous LBC comment. The call from the Muslim community is just very simple. We just want Muslim Palestinian lives, Christian Palestinian lives, all Palestinian lives to be held in equal regard to that of all other people, include, including Israelis. The loss of an innocent Israeli soul is tragic uh, and the attacks were tragic and, and horrendous. And what we're saying is that the loss of Palestinian souls should be equally tragic. Their life matters too. Muslim lives are also valuable. And the feeling from members, from councillors has been our humanity and our lives aren't given the same value. So it's been incredibly, incredibly difficult. At the same time, I have seen unbelievable levels of unity from within the Muslim community, passion, willing to campaign. Um, and so while we are, I think, in our most difficult moment, perhaps ever in the Labour Party, now is the time to fight um, because I'm not willing to give up. Uh, and I know many are. I'm not. You know, for me, when I think of the Labour Party, I think of being stood on a box somewhere in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, looking at a sea of people, young and old, of all different ethnicities, um, of all different backgrounds, all different stories, all of whom had a common goal. We all believed in a better world. We believed in a more equal society. We believed in justice. That's the Labour Party. That's what I want to fight for. Um, and I'm desperately hoping that we can get there. But it has to begin at the top. I hope the PLP are listening to Muslim members. Uh, I'm told there was a very robust meeting today. I hope the leadership are, are, are listening to members. And rather than equivocate and, and talk about what's come before, you've covered that very, very thoroughly. The call is now clear. The Labour Party must adopt a position of an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. That's, the, that, that's where we can go. If, if, if we want to rebuild trust, not just with the Muslim community, yes, critically the Muslim community, but also all people who care about the over 1,000 children who have died over the last, uh, I think, 12 to 13 days, if we care about their life, of the innocent souls who are, who, are, who are losing their life on both sides, then what we have to do is lead. And this is a thing I'm big on. I mean, you might have heard me talk about it before. It's political courage. You know, anyone can sit in any position of political leadership and just espouse what their advisors or focus groups or whatever is telling them is popular to do. But real political leadership, what real leadership is, is, is taking a stance uh, and and representing the most marginalized voices, the most vulnerable voices. And that's what we need to do. We don't need to parrot conservative party lines. We don't need to let them set our agenda or use their talking points. We need to lead. And real leadership, real rebuilding trust with the Muslim communities and getting us out of this pain, this pain that we're in, is calling for an immediate ceasefire.
Now, no, I did, as I've said, I interviewed two uh, former Labour councillors now who resigned, one in Oxford, uh, uh, sorry, Shyster Aziz, uh, who I've known for many years, so I've organised with her, and another councillor in, in Manchester. Uh, just so clear, so there's, there's balance here because there's obviously an ongoing debate and discussion currently taking place. Um, I mean, David Bratter here says, Keir has shown that he'll support genocide and throw minorities under the bus for political gain. His spine is cabinet and the NEC support them no matter what. Is it time to call Labour a lost cause? And I suppose, you know, a lot of people would go, a certain red line has been crossed here. It's, I mean, the guy lied through his teeth to become elected leader of the Labour Party. He said one of his pledges put human rights at the centre of everything Labour does in foreign policy. Um, and Labour ended up supporting war crimes, overtly, uh, claimed it didn't, and won't even call for a ceasefire, which is a precondition for ending the humanitarian catastrophe, all the while, while insulting Muslim voters by doing a... Uh, abusing uh, a visit to uh, an Islamic centre, uh, dishonestly misrepresenting what happened there, uh, and clearly making it obvious that they're just panicking because they see Muslim voters as voting fodder, um, who, who 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 they think they can throw patronising uh, bones to to assuage without offering anything meaningful. I mean, what do, what do, what do you think? I'm heartbroken that we've lost good councillors, good activists, hardworking representatives, people who've been loyal to the party. It's a personal choice uh, and I completely understand where they're coming from um, and I can see why they can't put up with it anymore. I think one of the things I want your audiences to understand, uh, perhaps if they're not Muslim, is the amount of pressure our local representatives are under. They're having to answer for what other people are saying elsewhere and I'm not just talking about Kit. Other leaders in the party um, have also, uh, I feel, um, let us down. Um, and so there's a huge amount of pressure and I'm heartbroken we've lost them and and, and I will do anything I can to support uh, them. I know we're going to get be getting in touch with them soon about any support that we can give them. But here, here's where I am. When people say, is Labour a lost cause? I have a different definition of Labour. I don't believe Keir Starmer is the Labour Party. I believe the members of the Labour Party, all those good people that I spoke about earlier today, and I feel a duty to fight for them uh, and to fight for a better world. Unfortunately, also, you know, uh, while the current position isn't where we want to be, we've called for an immediate ceasefire. We're in constant negotiations and discussions on that. Um, but it, it really comes down to that definition of Labour. Um, and the duty I think I have to continue to represent those voices and to and to make their positions incredibly incredibly clear. Um, I mean, just just finally um, on that. I mean, maybe trying to be a bit more optimistic because you know I, I I'm a socialist. I believe in collective pressure from below delivering results. You know, and 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 power can seize nothing without a demand. It never has, and it never will. Is Frederick Douglass so wisely put it in the 19th century? Um, and in terms of just in terms of pressure and maybe pressure paying off, I mean, we know 89% of Labour voters support an immediate ceasefire, according to YouGov. 250 councillors have signed a letter demanding a ceasefire. 23 Labour councillors have so far resigned in protest at Keir Starmer's support for war crimes. The British public also support a ceasefire, that poll showed. The majority right. of the British public, not just right. Labour voters. Yeah. Well, as as I as I keep pointing out, only three percent oppose say they definitely oppose an immediate ceasefire, which is the same percentage as believe the earth is flat. <laughs> that is the position of the Labour Party, though, and, right. and the position it is literally three percent. It's the same as believe right. the Earth. Um, I've seen Yasmin Qureshi, a Labour MP, speak out, and and she's actually on the front bench, call mm -hmm. for a, a ceasefire, demand a ceasefire, going against, I would say, the Labour's official position. So, I mean, I, I think she's probably thinking to herself, "Go on, go and sack me then." 
Um, because if they sack her, they're going to suffer a world of pain for doing that. But she has broken the uh, broken discipline. The point I'm making is, do you see any? Do you see the possibility? Because I think the problem I would say is that he's surrounded by crazed neocons um, who believe the Iraq War was great. I think that's the sort of people who now surround Keir Starmer and who I think are Islamophobic. We've seen multiple briefings against Muslim voters. Batley and Spen, they talked about Muslim voters being a bunch of anti-Semites and homophobes, and that's why they didn't like Keir Starmer. So, I mean, that's my, you know, do you think it's possible to shift these people? Uh, I definitely think it's possible to shift. I don't know whether we'll get to the position we want to, but I think shifting is absolutely part of the political fight that... that, that... Um, I, I think we're engaged in. Um, there are some good people as well, and I, I'm glad you've mentioned it. You know, when people talk about Labour, there are some brave, brave people in the party, including you know Yasmin Qureshi st stood up and spoke today. Absana Begum, in the face of absolute tirades of abuse and threats, got up on stage on a Saturday mm. uh, and spoke uh, for Palestinians and um, and for Palestinian rights, uh, justice, human rights, international law. Um, the likes of Zara Sultana have spoken, John McDonnell has spoken, Tehe Ali today has said uh, he believes Israel has committed war crimes. So so these, this is what gives me hope. If I'm optimistic, you know, I'm eternally optimistic. Remember, I'm the guy who thought he was going to beat the prime minister. So maybe I'm, uh, I'm optimistic to a fault. Um, but, you know, as disappointed and as tough as, as, as the last few days have been, I still believe in, in, in those people again, that, that, that we both fought alongside in, in 2019, that Labour Party still exists. Um, and and rather than just focusing on one individual, I want to fight uh, fight for them. Like I say, it's a very, very personal choice. Some have made other personal choices, and I respect that. And and that is, a, that is a personal place that you have to come for, too. But there is enough here, guys. That's all I'm saying, you know. Um, and the thing that we have to remember, I was listening to some of your interviews earlier. You know, the real courage is those innocent people who have bombs raining over their heads who are going to go to bed tonight without knowing whether they're going to wake up tomorrow. Three-year-old kids that I've seen who, 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 have, who have lost their lives under rubble, they bear no responsibility for what's happened in the last 10 to 12 days. They bear no responsibility to, their, to what's going to happen in the future over the coming 10 to 12 days. It's their courage and strength that, that, that I draw upon. And if I can do my part, even if it's small to shifting the Labour Party a little bit, I'll fight as long as I can. Um, but I have to say, I've never seen anything like this in the party with the scale of anger, pain and hurt. Uh, and I desperately, desperately hope that that people are listening. I really appreciate it. I know you have to go and we've got to wrap up very shortly, but I really, really appreciate it. And as I said, this is a live ongoing debate and I'll keep platforming very different, diverse opinions. Um, I'll be speaking to other councillors who've quit and obviously others who've made the decision uh, not to. And, you know, the argument must be whatever happens, putting pressure on the Labour leadership and, of course, the Conservative government uh, to shift course. But, Ali, really, really appreciate it. Great I, stuff. I promise you I'll get a haircut next time. Do you know what? I think I think roll with it. I think I like it. I mean, I keep... I'm not sure, I'm not sure about mine. I've had Thank better you so hair, much. much appreciated. Lots of love, lots of love and solidarity. And I'll speak to you Thank soon. By the way, I just want to say, you have been an ardent, ardent supporter in the fight against Islamophobia. For everyone listening, I want to thank you for that work because it's not always easy to support Muslims when we're under the barrage of abuse that we have been. And I want people to know both in private and public, you've always been a huge supporter in the fight against Islamophobia. I want to thank you for that. That means a lot. Um, but, you know, it, it, it goes without saying. And, and, and to the very end, I will always stand uncompromisingly against the horror of Islamophobia and with my Muslim siblings. To the very thank end. You. Speak right, so take care, buddy. Take care. Take care.
great stuff there from Ali. Uh, really, really appreciate having him. I do have something to say, by the way, um, before we wrap up. Um, I'll just finish going through some super chats. Um, yeah, Tad mentioned about Wix employees. I'm going to do a video, uh, I think I'll launch it tonight, on uh, the attempt to intimidate those who stand with the Palestinian people. Um, the real cancel culture, if you like. Um, FSM is a dog. I hope you'll have Miss Riley as a guest. I think we're talking about Rachel Riley. That is a no. Um, I'm sure she'll be. I'm sure. I'm sure she'll be gutted to hear that. Uh, Dorothy Liu, uh, thank you. Um, Tad Campbell, I'm sorry about Iran. I will put that next time. I'll, I'll get. I'll, I'll. I'll try and discuss that that issue. And Tad, I'm an idiot, so sorry about that. Thank you to State Daft. Thank you to Super Tasman. Thank you to Josephine Cameron. Um, Aziz, uh, they think it's their promised land. They can take it from whomever. whomever. However, politics is never going to solve this, I'm afraid, because of religious motives. Well, look, the, the land belongs to Arabs and Jews alike. There's never going to be a lasting settlement unless there's peace and security for Arabs and Jews. And we have to fight for that. Um, none of them are going or got to fight for no, none of them to be displaced. No one who lives there. Every, it's about living together. Um, and that means ending uh, an illegal occupation. It means ending apartheid. And it means ensuring that all citizens have equality regardless of their religion or ethnicity. Um, Aid Crawshaw. Well, we'll come on to, do you know, I'm going to come on to this, actually. That's very sweet. Uh, hold on. David Barata, um, I mentioned, thank you again for that great question. Uh, FSM is the dog. Starmer routinely crosses red lines. Yes, I think, so what, where all crimes is definitely crossing one red line. David Barata, um, okay, I'm not going to read out all these compliments. It's very sweet, though. Um, thank you, David, um, for being very sweet um, and to uh, Mega Sumra as well. Thank you so much to Aid Cranshaw. Thank you very much. Um, okay. In terms of these comments, in terms of um, saying thanks, I don't want to sound ungrateful, um, but, you know, because those of us who've stood as best we can over the last horrible weeks against an unbearable, criminal onslaught against innocent people have received thanks. But we don't deserve those thanks. And there is no point me having the platform that I have unless I use it at a time like this. I would never forgive myself. Never. Now, I mean, people say, oh, it must be hard. It must be so hard to, you know, to those who use their platform in this way. It is the easiest thing in the world to oppose a crime of historic proportions, the horror of which will scream through the ages. I'm not a Palestinian civilian trapped in a densely populated area, living amongst horror, wondering if every day or every night will be my last on earth. And every day for so many of them, it is their last day or night on the face of this earth. Thousands of them perishing, innocent civilians, in the rubble of Gaza, as a military superpower, its leaders showering the airways with genocidal rhetoric, just as their rockets shower that tiny strip with lethal fire. The thanks we owe are to the medics and the aid workers and the journalists who are there telling the world the truth of what is happening to Gaza. Many of them are doing so amidst unimaginable terror. And they are doing so often as they lose their friends, their lovers, their children, the screams unheard by the accomplices of war crimes who occupy the seats of power of a Western world drenched in oceans of blood of the past and of the present. But they are heard by us, 
They are hurt by us. And they will be avenged by history, I hope, with justice. Now, yes, there are people. There are people in these rich countries who aren't having bombs rained upon them, using their platforms to support the Palestinian people who faced victimization, their careers menaced, threatened. But they can take your job and they can take your livelihood, but they can't take your conscience or your humanity. That is on you. And to have a platform now and not to speak out, to use your voice, to do everything that you can is to be complicit is to be complicit with a crime of historic proportions, a crime which has been committed in the name of all of us. Now, without the invaluable support given to the state of Israel by our governments, the weapons, the diplomatic cover and support, not just in the current war, but over many decades of illegal occupation and apartheid, the Israeli state could not do what it is doing. And I'd say this, to those who have a platform, you know what is happening. You do know what's happening to the people of Gaza, even if you pretend you don't really know what is happening. I've seen some of you been reading your Twitter feeds saying, oh, it's all so complicated. It's not for me to say what's right or wrong. That is an excuse for silence when actually sometimes things really are quite simple. Almost all of us were united in revulsion when Hamas murdered innocent civilians on that dark day of 7th of October. The question which then arises is, do you support collective punishment and the mass slaughter of far, far, far more civilians than died on that day? Because already far, far more civilians have been killed than were killed on that horrible day. And many, many thousands will die. That is one certainty. Now, park for a minute. The longest belligerent occupation of modern times. The siege of Gaza, Gaza, which goes back so many years. The theft of land, the illegal settlements, the mass incarceration of Palestinian civilians, including children who have been subjected to torture, to sexual abuse, according to Save the Children. The killings. 96% of all of the deaths in the 15 years before 7th of October were Palestinian. The apartheid, as defined by the likes of Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the Israeli human rights organization, Betzalem. The question that I would simply pose to those with a platform is, do you believe that a Palestinian life has an equal worth to that of an Israeli innocent life? and a British innocent life, or an American innocent life? Do you? Do you really, though? Because, forgive me, I don't think most of my colleagues do. You see, for commentators of a right-wing disposition, I expect nothing less. They have dabbed their hands in racism for many, many years. But what of those who call themselves liberals or moderates? Some hung Ukrainian flags from their windows. They tweeted. They fulminated. They denounced the brutal crimes committed by Putin's regime against the people of Ukraine, and they were absolutely right to do so. So did I. I did so 
because you should always stand against the evil and injustices of this world. Russia unleashed a brutal and unjustified invasion, and they killed so many innocent people as they did so. And I spoke out, and I did so knowing, though, and let me make this clear, knowing there was no courage involved whatsoever. Our media isn't cheering on Russia and its crimes. Neither are our politicians. All I did, actually, is repeat a national consensus. Tweet how awful Vladimir Putin is. Well, I did that over and over again. And that was correct. I've said it on television over and over again. And that was correct. But I wasn't damning something done in my name, was I? Now, some of you with your platform spend your time pumping out, I would say, often pretty basic anti-conservative content. And some of you may think you're taking a brave stand, but you're not because the Tories have collapsed as a political force and have collapsed for a very long time. They've destroyed themselves and they are disgraced. They didn't need any help as they did so. If all the moderate, self-defined, uncritical Labour cheerleaders, the influencers and commentators stop churning out that anti-conservative content, do you know what would change in the next general election? I'll tell you what would change in the next election in terms of its outcome. Absolutely nothing. Zero. Zilch. No impact whatsoever. Churning out content, essentially, for the hell of it. There is no bravery or courage involved. They are kicking a football into a goal whose goalkeeper abandoned it a very long time ago. But if more people piled on pressure over this historic crime and raised awareness amongst the public about the horrors being inflicted on the innocent people of Gaza, that would put pressure on our Conservative government and also pressure on the Labour opposition. Because critical, critical to forcing the government to shift course is to get Labour to shift course. Because at the moment, the Conservatives know they don't need to put pressure on the Israeli state for the crimes it's committing because they're not being, their feet are not being held to the fire of the Labour Party, leading and giving voice to public opinion, which is increasingly angry about what is happening to innocent people. But the point is, if these commentators suddenly did this, they'll get yelled at. You will get yelled at. You'll get screamed at. You'll get denounced by some of your own allies, some of your own base, the audience you've spent years curating, often quite lucratively. You'll get yelled at by some of the people who pay for your content and you will be accused wrongly of terrible, terrible things you're not guilty of. And you will get death threats. It takes some guts, doesn't it, after all? But I've seen liberal commentator self-described, moderate commentator self-defined, either say nothing or say, oh, it's all so sad, isn't it? It's all so sad, so awful. Meaningless platitudes. Where there were excoriating moral condemnation of Putin's horror and damnation for those deemed apologists of what Putin did, there is almost silence now. Silence. The occasional retweet by some of a BBC report about Palestinian suffering and nothing more. Where there was burning passion, and there is, about the horrors of the Conservative government, there is almost nothing for its uncritical support for what Israel is doing. Now, some of you, in your attempt to show up your moral standing, knowing that, like entire neighbourhoods in Gaza, is being shredded by these Israeli missiles, are now spending a lot of your time, I can see, hunting down examples of this or that extremist who supports Palestinian solidarity, who in no way are representative of those who stand with the Palestinian people in their time of horror trying to claim that it's those, therefore, who oppose this historic crime who are the real ones, who are morally indecent and outrageous. And that is a shield. But I'll tell you this, you are complicit in what's going on. You have no moral high ground. There is no cost to the stands you take against Putin's Russia, like everybody else, or a conservative government that long imploded. There's no courage involved. But what there is now 
is a horror which is happening in your name, which most of our media supports and our political establishment supports. And you have made yourself complicit in a moral outrage by not speaking out or by trying to suggest it's all too complicated to take a stand. You either speak now or you do deserve to be damned by history and you should never, ever be listened to on any moral question ever, ever again. That's my view on that. Now, um, we have lots of content to come. I'm going to uh, give a platform to the voices we need to be hearing from. Uh, not least um, a Israeli academic who um, has been hounded out of their job. I'm going to be listing some of the examples of those who've been hounded out of their jobs. Um, and I will be interviewing Palestinian voices, um, Arab voices, Muslim voices as well, um, and Jewish voices, uh, both in Israel and here, who are fighting for peace. Um, so um, we have lots to do in the coming days and coming weeks. And um, as you will be aware, I do this live show every, or many of you will, I do this live show at five o'clock every week, but I also do, uh, we put our videos, uh, daily videos on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, podcast, all the rest of it. And they're reaching a huge number of people, which is great because, um, I mean, just looking here on, on Instagram, last 30 days, over 2 million accounts reached. We've reached millions on YouTube in the last month, uh, millions separately on Facebook, and also on Twitter and also on the podcast. So we are reaching people and we're going to be doing lots and lots more to reach people um, because what's the point of having this platform otherwise? <laughs> um, press like and subscribe. I'll clip some of the stuff, um, including clipping. Um, that I mean, it's so important people hear from that brilliant doctor who I was so glad to have just what people are going through and being able to speak so eloquently about what's happening, but we need to get that one particular out. Um, lots of love, everyone. Um, this is grim, um, but it's particularly grim, obviously, for those who are um, suffering this historic horror. And also, I just want to say, I mean, part, part of what, what Ali said there, I mean, it's so important, again, those of us on platform particularly stand with our Muslim siblings at a time like this, because a lesson is being spelled out to a large, a significant chunk of the British population that uh, the British media and politicians do not care uh, when uh, people who are not white and people, for example, who are Muslim are being slaughtered en masse. And that is telling Muslim citizens of this country something, which is um, the lives of people like you are not worth or not of equal worth. You know, it's really important we speak out um and challenge the racism which defines this entire discussion, anti-Palestinian racism, anti-Muslim racism, um, and we need to double down on that. We need to as well uh, give that platform um, uh, to, to the incredibly courageous Jewish voices, both here and in Israel, and I've been trying to do exactly that, and I've got um, many interviews there to come, and to take on always, and always be vigilant against the evil of anti-Semitism. Um, Anti-Semitism is real. It does exist. 2,000 years of it embedded in European culture. And, you know, it has to be taken on as an evil in itself. But also the fact that so many Jewish people did come to conclude that their safety and security could only be bound up by the state of Israel was because of that persecution and that hatred and bile. And that continues to be the case.
And until Jewish people are made to feel safe wherever they live, then it will be difficult to end this horror. And that has to be taken seriously. And I've always tried to take that seriously. So I hope as well everyone takes uh, that on board because we have seen a big increase of anti-Semitism in the aftermath of this, where people, again, try to blame Jewish people individually for the behavior of the Israeli government and Israeli regime. And that has to be fought. So we stand with our Muslim and our Jewish siblings. And um, don't forget, as the march as well on Saturday, I'll be there. We'll be marching every week, all of us, I hope. Um, but yes, as I said, interviews tomorrow, video later, and lots of love, everyone. And uh, press like and subscribe. You can support the Keep showing their own patreon.com for slash omj 84 Thank you so much to uh yes, everyone who on Super Chat have gone through that. So we're gonna do that again. Um lots of love everyone and I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.